0: I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending August 23rd. AMS decided to purchase OSRAM. The former specializes in sensors, the latter in photonics. Together, they'll chart an intriguing technological roadmap. We'll find out what the combination will mean for the market. The Hot Chips Conference was held this week. We've got a rundown of one of the hottest, an unconventional wafer-scale AI processor from secretive startup, Cerebrus. Also today, smart water bottles. These are computerized water bottles complete with display screens and Wi-Fi connectivity. The bottles run apps designed to entice your children to drink more water. You might be asking yourself, how smart is a smart water bottle? Well, at the moment, they're being bamboozled by six-year-olds.
1: Well, uh, instead of water, kids can put Coca-Cola in it so they can outsmart their parents.
0: We'll get back to so-called smart water bottles in a moment. First up today, Austrian sensor manufacturer AMS said it's purchasing photonic specialist Osram. It was actually the second time AMS tried to buy Osram this year. Nitin Dahad wrote the story of the merger of the two companies and their intriguing technological roadmap. Here he is with international editor Junko Yoshida, who asked him about the financial intrigue and how the two companies are likely to proceed once they combine.
2: Before getting into the deal, tell me, what does AMS do and what does OSRAM do?
3: AMS uh, is very focused on sensing ICs, sensing ICs technologies and solutions around three categories that's optical, audio, and imaging. And a key component of its business is actually consumer around uh, 71% in 2018. And from what most people understand, Apple is the major customer. Uh, Osram, as we probably all know, is a lighting products company. And it's got three divisions, which are automotive, opto-semiconductors, and digital.
2: Got it. So, you know, what actually caught my eyes about the story is that there was a bit of flip-flops on the part of uh, AMS, potential buyer, but also on the part of Osram. And it turns out that there were also some others involved in a bidding war. Can you break it down for us, Nitin? Uh,
3: yes, without making this into a uh, documentary, let's go through this. <laughs> so yeah. AMS previously bid for Osram in May 2019. Uh, at that time, Osram said the probability of the deal Uh, going through was low, but it would allow AMS to carry out its formal due diligence. So, following that, um, in July, AMS said it wouldn't be pursuing the deal because it didn't see sufficient basis to proceed with the offer. And uh, you you may interpret that as being, you know, they couldn't raise uh, enough finance, or I think some might have suggested it's been overpriced. Yep. Uh, Soon after this, OSRAM's board received and recommended Uh, an offer from U.S. investors, Bain Capital and the Carlyle Group, which it said was an attractive offer. So this actually came at the time of Osram's earnings announcement when they said business was bleak and they were very pessimistic about the future. And then it goes on. So two weeks later, on 11th of August, AMS put in a counter bid with a higher offer. And just to give you perspective here, the, the AMS original offer was €38 Euros or 38.5. Yep. Um Bain & Carlisle put in at €35. Euros and uh, the AMS counter bid was again 30, €38. Uh, Euros. Back
2: to the original
3: price. Yes. Back. Yeah. Um, actually, the Bain & Carlisle offer was rejected because I think one of Osram's largest shareholders, Alliance Global Investors, claimed it was too low a bid.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: since then, and yeah, you know, the latest as of last week is um, AMS and Osram have both said they are in constructive discussion on a business combination agreement and hope to start the tender period for its offer before the end of fifth of September, twenty nineteen. Now, if any of you remember the soap opera soap back in the seventies, this is kind of that yeah. going on at the moment. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, uh, but at the end of the day, it's clear that uh, the both sides both. AMS and Osram now have this will to merge. Is that right? I mean, they... they...
3: Yes, I mean, uh, without going into sort of the technical sort of sides of all the uh, uh, arrangements, yes, uh, I think they both have the will.
2: Good. You know, but one of the things uh, about this deal, when you come to think of it, AMS is a much smaller company than Osram. So what motivated... AMS to buy OSRAM and uh, why OSRAM was on sale.
3: OK, um, so AMS, uh, just to sort of put in context, as you say, AMS 2018 revenue was 1.4 billion euros, uh, mm-hmm. while OSRAM did 3.8 billion euros in 2018. Uh, right. The official line is that they want to create a global leader in sensor solutions and photonics with revenue yeah. of about five point five billion euros. Uh, mm-hmm. From, yeah, it would appear to make sense from both companies' perspectives. Uh, Because AMS is very significantly exposed to a large customer, i.e., Apple, uh, for Mm -hmm. its consumer business, as we already talked about. And Mm -hmm. uh, they say the deal would diversify its revenue mix and not make it so highly dependent on a key customer. Meanwhile, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, I think we already said, Osram has been quite. pessimistic in its uh, forecasts so uh, especially with automotive markets being weak so uh, it, yeah. it obviously was a, a key reason for it to look at this offer
2: so from the ams standpoint they are expanding its own revenue base by acquiring a much bigger
3: Osram, right? And yes. that's the bottom line? Yes, and, and, right. and I think they're, they're keen to position it, uh, although it's a takeover, they're keen to position it as a business combination, uh, as most companies usually do.
2: All right, let's talk about some of the technologies involved in uh, this uh, M&A. So you, your story tells us that the AMS is keen on expanding its automotive business. How big is AMS, current automotive business, And what do they make? In contrast, what sort of automotive products does OSRAM make for
3: the automotive market? AMS in its 2018 revenue breakdown said automotive was just 29% of total revenue. It's automotive sensing solutions around position sensing, LiDAR imaging, driver monitoring, battery management, and air classification. Right. Uh, And as an example, it's Vixel, and uh, in case... um, We don't actually know what VIXEL stands for. (laughs) I know many people use it, but it actually means vertical cavity surface emitting lasers. So it's VIXEL arrays and technology provide sensing and high power light sources for LiDAR. Um, Ah. Now, OSRAM, I think, uh, is clearly known for its lighting products for automotive. Uh, The rationale, as I said, for the combined business is to boost automotive revenue. And uh, they... Together, want to be a leading player in optical semiconductors with solutions for 3D sensing, in-cabin sensing, industrial imaging, assisted and autonomous driving, and the list goes on, automotive human machine interface, and automotive digital lighting, which obviously comes from the Osram side.
2: Did AMS say anything that how big do they envision their automotive business going to be after the acquisition of uh, Osram?
3: So yes, um their uh, statements say that they want to significantly uh sort of diversify the revenue composition of the combined business so that it's around 35% exposure to consumer and 45% to automotive. So automotive is obviously clearly a jump, but also when you look at the combined business, it's almost half. And uh yeah, they they want to be less dependent on car volume growth but driven by market penetration of new features in the automotive business. So, in short, it's an increase in the automotive business.
0: Nitton's story on the acquisition is on the website. The annual Hot Chip Symposium was held at Stanford University earlier this week, and the participants this year did not disappoint. Some of the most anticipated news was from Cerebris, a secretive startup that finally revealed what it's up to. The company introduced what it is calling its wafer-scale engine. It's an artificial intelligence training system designed to stick a dagger in NVIDIA's heart. There are no words that can adequately convey how big this thing is, so we're just going to say it's big and give you the numbers. Each system consists of 84 tiles built in a 7x12 array on a wafer. Each tile has 4,800 cores for a grand total of over 400,000 cores. Each core has a sliver of dedicated memory, but add all those slivers and you get a total of 18 gigabytes of memory. All of that together represents over 1.2 trillion transistors. Now, wafer scale technology is exactly as hard as you've heard tell. The company notes that the largest wafer scale device that ever succeeded was 840 square millimeters. The wafer scale engine is over 46,000 square millimeters. 840 versus 46,000. Like I said, big. The 84 tiles are connected in a mesh network, meaning the entire system is pretty much self-contained. It also means Cerebrus had to devise a way to create that mesh communications network on the wafer, or on chip, since the company considers the entire thing a single giant chip. Andrew Feldman is the CEO and founder of Cerebrus. He wouldn't comment on the cost, the design, or the roadmap for the rack system that Cerebrus plans to sell, but he was very clear on what it can do. He said the box will deliver the performance of 1,000 NVIDIA GPUs while requiring just 2 to 3% of its space and power. Now, power consumption is absolutely critical for data centers. If Cerberus's wafer scale engine works even half as well as 1,000 GPUs, the reduction in power consumed alone will guarantee success. Interest in this thing is Keen, however. Feldman said... Initially, we thought there would be 200 customers in the world, but we've revised that estimate to 1,000. Everywhere we go, we find companies with large data sets they don't want to keep in Google Cloud, where a single training run might cost $150,000. We invite you to eetimes.com to check out our story on the Cerebris device, along with other stories from the Hot Chips conference, including one about Huawei's ambitious plans for a large ecosystem of AI products based on its new DaVinci cores, and another on IBM's innovative suggestion for a replacement for DDR memory to support its Power 9 CPUs. An astonishing percentage of children aren't drinking enough water every day. According to a study published in April in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one kid out of every five doesn't drink any water in any given day. They might be drinking milk, or they might be drinking juice or soda pop or some other sugary drink, but not water. As if there weren't enough things for parents to worry about. And... Just like so many other sociological problems, there's a technological fix. It's the smart water bottle. These are water bottles with display screens. Why do you need a display screen on a water bottle? Why to run apps on. Apps designed to entice children to drink more water. One app, for example, connects young friends who can compete with each other to see who can drink their water first. That's right, the Kids Connect. It's a water bottle that requires Wi-Fi. Are you surprised that some of these water bottles can cost up to 140 smackaroos? But even before the study on children's water intake was published, there were already companies preparing smart water bottles. For example, Gululu based in China, but presenting itself as a Silicon Valley enterprise, ran a Kickstarter way back in 2016, asking for $100,000 to develop a smart water bottle. It received double that. Smart water bottles are now coming available worldwide, but one of the markets that embraced smart water bottles the quickest was China. E.E. E. Times has a sister publication called ESM China, which ran a story about the phenomenon. Echo Chao is one of our colleagues there. International editor Junko Yoshida invited Echo back to E.E. E. Times on air to talk about it.
2: Aspen Core China team recently wrote a story about so-called smart water bottles. In essence, you know, from what I gather, this is, this is just a water bottle, but it's connected to an app and mobile phone. It's designed to track and record how much water your kid drank per day. Just like a smartwatch can track how much exercise you did today, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, in my opinion, this is a classic IoT device story, and yet, this particular smart water bottle designed for kids, because this is squarely targeting um, children, Mm -hmm. I think this that makes this story uniquely Chinese, in my <laughs> opinion. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, tell me a little bit about. Um, it does say that smart bottle comes with an electric, uh, electronic screen. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about what this display is used for and how is it designed to entice kids to drink more water. Okay. Uh, well, through the screen, uh,
1: you can check battery of the cup or how my, uh, how much water did you drink. It also enables uh, social interaction, uh, music or story playing and interactive game function. Uh, I feel it sounds like a toy for kids. Yeah,
2: definitely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, in order to entice kids to drink more water, for example, uh, some cops have an animated character on the screen. Uh, every time kids drink water, sensors will make the character grow up a bit, <laughs> or they could get angry when the kids forget to drink water. Jeez. Also some cops uh, can make friends. so. Kids can compete with their friends on who drinks more water. Oh, my goodness. Uh, parents can, yeah, <laughs> parents can monitor in how much water did their kids drink with app
2: on their phone. Wow. Talk about kids on leash, right? How much water kids drunk. All right. So, <laughs> right. so tell me a little bit about the, the beyond Wi-Fi connectivity and the small display. Can you tell us that the, what are the basic technology building blocks are in this smart water model. Uh, the
1: function was realized by using microcontroller and Bluetooth or Wi-Fi and sensors and touch screen and battery. And I think that's enough. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty basic IoT building, IoT device building blocks, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, all right. So according to this story though, uh, Echo, you know, some of these smart bottles cost more than $100, U.S. $100. But apparently the smart water bottle is not necessarily as smart as it's cracked up to be. Tell us what the smart water water bottle doesn't do, making it less smart.
1: Well, uh, instead of water, uh, kids can put Coca-Cola in it. So, They can uh, outsmart their parents. (laughs) I see. Uh, I believe that uh, some people misunderstand smart. Real smart make life easier, not uh, more complicated.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, this kind of uh, tracking device... You know, in a, in a, in the first sight, it looks kind of cool, mm-hmm. but it does get your life more complicated, I guess, right? Yes, I I remember
1: that uh, several years ago, yeah, uh, I was given a smart cup as a gift. which oh. it was very cool, but the cup. Uh, actually smiles of plastic so I never drink water in it just uh, use it as a as a toy so so wait 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 so
2: the cup was made of what material was that you said did you say plastic plastic okay so it yeah. may make mm-hmm. you feel a little nervous whether it's uh, safe to use that or not yeah yeah uh, exactly yes interesting uh-huh. okay okay So, um, you know, tell me that how popular is this smart water bottle in China today? Do you think this is just a fad um, that's already fading away or this is going to stay?
1: Uh, In my opinion, it should be a niche market or a fleeting show, Mm. but given China's large population, uh, in GD.com, that's an e-commerce platform in China, uh, we found there are still many brands of smart cars, and some have thousands of shipments per month.
2: That's a lot. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I did see that there are a lot of brands. I mean, how many brands do you think that they have? A dozen, more than a dozen brands, you think?
1: Uh, I, I believe it's more than a dozen. Wow. And the interesting thing is, you think it's a, a unique market in China, but some cups, as they showed on their uh, website, that they are originally designed in U.S. Really? Wow. <laughs> <Right>. Okay.
0: <laughs> the original story on smart water bottles was published by ESM China, but we've got an English translation at eetimes.com. It's called Is a $140 smart water bottle for your kids worth the price? And now, if you'll just step this way, I'll introduce you to the anniversaries of technological innovations from years ago this week. On August 22nd, in 1955, the first computer user group formed. A group of people in and around Los Angeles who were all customers of IBM's new 704 computer were trying to learn how to use their new machines, but got frustrated when they discovered they already knew more about the 704 than the people who sold it to them. They got the list of customers and called everyone on it from a phone booth. Hey, remember phone booths? And invited them all to a meeting. The meeting was held in a basement conference room at the Rand Corporation. On August 18th in 1947, after eight years of working together, William Hewlett and David Packard finally got around to incorporating their company. On August 17th, 1982, Royal Philips Electronics manufactured the world's first compact disc printed with music produced specifically for commercial sale. It came off the line of a polygram factory just outside of Hanover in Germany. The CD was The Visitors by AbBA. Although pressed later, copies of Billy Joel's 52nd Street hit the market first. On August 21st in 1888, William Seward Burroughs patented a calculating machine. He and some associates formed the American Arithmometer Company to sell it. That first machine didn't always provide the correct results, however. As you might imagine, kind of a bad thing in a calculator. But three years later, Burroughs got a patent for a revised version that was consistently accurate. And that's the one that sold millions for the Burroughs Adding Machine Company. The company eventually evolved into one of the leading computer manufacturers of the 1960s and early 70s. It merged with Sperry in 1986. The combined company renamed itself Unisys. Here's a clip from an industrial film produced by the company in the 1950s. This was the Burroughs Organization, a little machine shop in the city of St. Louis.
3: Mr. Burroughs had worked in a bank and well knew what prolonged metal computation took out of a man. Now, he had devised a machine which computed totals with cool and unchanging accuracy. He believed his machine had a big future among banks, that they would eventually buy as many as 8,000. There were then 8,000 banks in the country. Back in the 1880s,
0: this was considered an estimate of majestic dimension. For some of you, the name William S. Burroughs might have rung a bell. For others, it might have rung two bells. The founder of the Burroughs Adding Machine Company had a grandson named after him. That was the beat generation figure and author of the book, The Naked Lunch, William S. Burroughs. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending August 23rd. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. A transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we've referred to. We'll be back next Friday with a new episode of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santo.